0: a DIY manual for the Construction of Stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, All right, everybody, welcome to the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's nice to be with you. Happy Fourth of July. Happy Independence Day. I have a special surprise for you. This is a Sunday episode. And my guest is Mark Leidner. He's back on the program for a second time. He first appeared in episode 545 back in 2018. Mark Leidner is a hyphenate. He is multi-talented. He's written a couple of feature films, the sci-fi noir Entitled Empathy Incorporated He wrote a relationship comedy called Jammed He published a story collection on tyrant books back in 2018 It is called Under the Sea And back in uh, 2011 Mark Leidner published a poetry collection Called Beauty Was the Case That They Gave Me That same year he put out a book of aphorisms on Sator Press called The Angel in the Dream of Our Hangover. So I'm very pleased to get the chance to talk with Mark Leidner again as he celebrates the publication of this new poetry collection. Once again, that is called Returning the Sword to the Stone. Today's episode is made possible by William Morrow Books, publisher of Count the Ways, the new novel by Joyce Maynard, on sale July 13th count the ways tells a mesmerizing story of a family covering the full arc from the hopeful early days of a young marriage to parenthood divorce the costly aftermath tracking how that aftermath ripples through the lives of all the characters Ann Hood calls Count the Ways, quote, rich and complex, brilliant and heartbreaking. And Carolyn Levitt calls it, quote, exactly the book we all need now. Count the Ways deals with new love, broken marriages, family tragedy, parent child estrangement, and gender transition. What more could you ask for? <laughs> Count the Ways, the new novel by Joyce Maynard, on sale July 13th from William Morrow books. So before we begin today, I thought I would have Mark Leidner read a selection from Returning the Sword to the Stone. I like to do this when I have poets on the show. It makes sense. It gives you a little bit of a taste of what the author is all about, what the collection is all about, and I'm going to share with you now. Some audio of Mark reading a poem entitled Youth is a
1: Fugitive. So here he is. This is Mark Leidner. Youth is a fugitive that thinks it's a hostage. You know the labyrinth has two exits if you can feel the wind. Hell is an orgy of everyone you know. Heaven an orgy of strangers. Just the faint glimmer of the possibility of love instantly gerrymanders your entire past. An exotic analogy to which no one relates, but to which people wish they related, will always out-circulate an actually apt analogy to which people actually relate. A child surprised that a neon sign isn't hot the first time they touch one knows how it feels as an adult to achieve one's goals. The amount of muffin left stuck to the wrapper when you open it is the percent of your childhood that was the way you remember it. Crime is a dream justice has when it sleeps. Boredom is the cruelest aphrodisiac. All you need is love to have a home in every moment, and all you need is poetry to have it be a mansion. Desire rudders a ghost ship. Believing in God is like believing in an endless stream of letters following Z. Loving anything more than yourself is like a misquote that clears you of plagiarism. Cowardice is the fear of suffering, courage, the fear of wrongdoing. Nothing is purer than gratitude, and because it's so pure, it's the first thing to blow away when the wind blows. Anything is possible but everything is too expensive. History is stranger than truth or fiction. The eyes are teeth that see. Grace is a diaper you never have to change. Mourning, a more convincing dream. Life is long for a brief time, then brief for a long time. The problem with irony is that it's too soothing. It suggests a pattern to tragedy and therefore mitigates the terror that tragedy is random. Were tragedy patternless, we'd be meaningless. And all the ironies of literature are a dam against this despair. So
0: my guest today, once again, is Mark Leidner. His new poetry collection, Returning the Sword to the Stone, is available now from Phonograph. Editions. It is an entirely pleasurable read. It's smart. It's funny. It's subtle. It's challenging. It sticks with you. I wanted to reread it as soon as I finished the last page. It's that kind of book. So, without any further preamble, this is my conversation with Mark Leidner, and his new collection, One More Time, is called Returning the Sword to the Stone.
1: Most of these poems are fragments, so I'll kind of think of a million fragments, you know, around an idea, or I'll I'll draw up a bunch of single images that by themselves wouldn't be a poem, but um, the eight years is how long it takes to arrange them in the right order, cut out the ones that don't fit or you know so it's it's very much a collage um process and it's not like oh this this poem's 8 years old and I wrote it 8 and finished it 8 years ago it's like no I kind of had the framework 8 years ago and it took me this long or you know it could be 8 it could be 1 it could be 2 but but usually my poems take a very long time to revise and they're in constant states of revision until someone says hey we want to publish a book then then i go through another intense revision where every you know i could change everything i could change every line or every order but over time certain lines will glue together and say no these two need to go next to each other okay these 17 lines are a poem these 30 lines over here are a different poem so it kind of comes about very slowly that way but the generation is kind of just constantly thinking of jokes and stuff, and Twitter is kind of like the 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 fuel. Or um, often I'll think of something. It's like, oh, it's almost as it's it's good enough for Twitter, or I should post a tweeter. Um, and then I'll say, no, that this one can be in a poem, or you know. So it's it's often thought of line by line. There's a couple poems in the book. There are more monologues that come. up come out as a monologue. Um but those are my two types of poems, a sort of collage of lines or a monologue. And do the monologues come more quickly? They will the rough drafts will come very quickly. You know, I might sit down one day and be like, oh my God, what if I had a speaker who said this or began with this premise and I'll uh, I'll crank out a draft in twenty minutes, you know, just off the top of my head. And that will still take eight years to revise so it doesn't um every time i look at it i want to change it and i so every time i want to change it i keep changing it and then i'll change it back and often eight years after the first draft i end up with a final draft that is almost exactly the same as the first draft but with (laughs) just maybe one good line somewhere in one slightly better line somewhere in there or a slightly better ending but it's been around the world and back a hundred times in terms of adding stanzas, kicking out stanzas, getting old stanzas back in there. So it's strange. It's, it's, you say it's efficient. And I think the reading experience, I hope it is f- efficient in that sense that you get a lot from a small amount. You get a lot of meaning or potential meaning that you can kind of take ownership of, but the writing process is extremely inefficient in the, you I will revise massively, only to end up back where I started.
0: That's interesting, and it's interesting too to hear you talk about Twitter because I think last time you were on the show we talked about your Twitter and how uh, much I like it. Uh, you know, especially stacked up against most Twitter feeds, uh, there's a real it's a real art project for you. I think that's maybe the best use of Twitter is like a poet making poetry on Twitter or. or you know, conceiving of the entire thing as, as a kind of rolling art project. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. But I want to drill down a little bit more into how these things are, how these poems of yours are made, because. There are two things in my mind that are working at odds with one another. The first is that you take eight years to do a poem, you know, that you just talked about this lengthy process of revision, kind of circular process of revision. And then uh, at the same time, there is my knowledge of joke writing like just having a funny thought or a, a you know like a, a, a joke occurring in your mind that you then verbalize that works uh the same could be said of twitter you know tweeting something that you hope is funny and seeing how it does <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. in my experience the funny ones always come fast and the ones that i labor over or i think too much about inevitably sink so that's where I'm like a little like I'm like, "Well, wait, how can these things be so funny?" Maybe that's where the circular editorial process comes
1: into play where you wind up right back where you started. I think that that's somewhat accurate that it's it's also true for me that the more I work on a, even a joke, a stupid, really you know, terrible or stupid joke on Twitter, I will work a lot on them and um I don't really know why. It's like I'm searching for this like idealized form that I'm trying to find. And um it will the ones that are on there are the ones that are the best. They're like the one percent and the rest are never seen because they don't work and I do labor over them stupidly and they end up not being good. Um and there are some times when I'll think of one off the top of my head and I'll just tweet it out. But it's not it's it's always missing something. I always look back at it again. And I'm like, oh, i should have I wanted to what happens if I'd have pushed it further or something So I think that if you're in general writing comedy is and jokes is is more improvisational and quicker, and that is a way to do it um and it's it's but i I always go past that I will over revise I'll kill a bunch of them by over revising. But if you keep going, I think there there is the ability to construct a, um, for me a, a more appealing joke. With an intense amount of revision, although it, I don't think it's worth it. So it's it's almost like, even when you succeed, you fail. Um, I wish I could be someone who only tweeted off the top of his head. And I never looked, I never thought about it once, you know, past the first draft. And then I also got a million followers and a million likes and uh, whatever that means, whatever kind of success one envisions for that behavior. But um, it just, I don't, it doesn't work for me. My my off the top of my head jokes are not good. They're, they're usually like petty or like... Um, There's like a thread of self-pity in them that I I don't like or there's something about them I don't like. So I will inevitably try to like bury them, bury those emotions I don't like to show underneath this like encrusted layer of revision so that I can get to a joke that, um, I don't know, is more mysterious to me. Okay, so –
0: a bunch of things. First of all, when you're on Twitter and you you put something up and it doesn't perform well, like do you take it down then? Like do you let the audience decide what gets to live on
1: your Twitter feed? Often, I, not not often will I delete, but I definitely have deleted in the past, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with deleting things. Um, I'd say nine times out of ten, if a joke does terribly. The other day I tweeted one I it got like one like after like 8 hours and I was like what happened? I really don't understand. I thought this was good. And so I deleted it out of shame or like I don't know. Um but I trust on some level I I do trust my audience. I, I know when I when I when I get people who I know and like and respect and they <laughs> they give me that feedback, I like, I feel good. Um, but every once in a while I'll tweet something that does terribly and I'll leave it up there because I'm like, no, this one's actually good. Or it's, it's not, it's not hitting the right audience, but I don't care. It's, it's true to me or something. So it's, it's fun to have those that fail that you still feel proud of. Um, but I'll definitely delete the ones that I'm ashamed of. Yeah, I used to, I mean, I like when I was on Twitter, I would,
0: if, if a tweet did not get at least like five Likes, I would just take it down. That was always my, it was like, I trust the wisdom of the crowd. Like if uh, <laughs> if uh, if the audience, you know, if you follow, nobody likes it, then I guess it bombed. I'm talking about jokes, you know, and then there were occasionally some that I really believed in. And like you, I would just be like, no, fuck it. This, this stays. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to back down. <laughs> like, this is a good it's joke. It's like
1: a... <laughs> It's like a minor kind of like moral stand you take that makes you feel like a mini hero in your mind. Yeah. uh, But I feel like I have, I I think Twitter is at this, uh, on the one hand, it's the whole world is, you know, some version, some slice of the world is on there. So the audience is full of strangers who don't know you and they could encounter your tweet and react however they react. But also it's highly cultivated your audience if you've been tweeting for a long time the people who are following you they they know what they're they know what to expect and i feel like personally i've tested their patience many enough times to know when something is stupid but still good and when it's just stupid and not good and i I trust them you know specifically i don't necessarily trust the strangers who might encounter it but like My friends who I've had for years on there, if they don't like it, I know something's wrong.
0: So when it comes to your Twitter, do you have a way of defining the project to yourself? Like, do you have like a real intentionality around it? Are you writing jokes? Are you writing fragments of poems? Has this been something that you have been doing from the jump on that platform do you know what i'm saying like did you set out to do a certain thing on twitter that you can language to yourself or is it more like intuitive and like
1: slipshod than that i think it is um it does it does have a definable goal goal for me um but that goal is changing a lot so it ends up being as if it's instinctive but i remember in the early days i was like what you know, in 2008 or whenever it was or 10 or I can't remember when I started. I knew there was something interesting about it, but I didn't know what I didn't know what I was supposed to use it for. And so my goal was like, figure out how to use it. So just start using it in any way until you find your objective. And I think that is one reason why a lot of people don't use social media or whatever. I mean, it's hard to like use it to find out how to use it. But to me, that's also the function of poetry and kind of why I wrote and why I write poetry. It was like, I don't know why I'm doing this. I don't think anybody needs to hear from me or wants to. Um, What is is my goal with this? Uh, I mean, what is the point of me trying to write a poem and publishing it? Um, And that becomes finding that goal. It's like, well, I'm just going to do it without knowing what my goal is and see if anything dawns on me if see if i can find purpose after the act is, is is in action so for a long time that was the goal of twitter and then it became more clearly like well i think of jokes constantly that don't fit in they never fit into poetry they never fit into the fiction or the whatever other things that i write so what am i supposed to do with them if i'm already thinking of them i do like sharing jokes i like being funny i like i like finding ways to um I don't know share weird jokes like I do with my friends so it was a way to um, use the scraps I was already creating that I didn't really have an output uh, an outlet for and then going down the road it also becomes a marketing tool as I try to like um, avoid marketing and anything related to self-promotion at all costs but it seems to me like the easiest and least soul-destroying way to create an audience for the books that I would like to write. Um, I'm not interested – like I don't like going to book – I don't like – not that anyone's banging on my door to go on a book tour, but even if they were, I don't think I, – I don't enjoy a lot of the things you're supposed to do if you want to make a living as a writer. And um, – so Twitter is like the laziest version of a way to create awareness about my writing. Um although uh, although it is the least soul-destroying way, I think of all the ways that I know about, it's still very soul-destroying, so it's it's not all I constantly question whether I should do it or whether it's worth it. And I know many successful writers who write awesome books and they never have any social media accounts and they still have an audience. And I think and they don't seem to be marketing at themselves. Um, I'm often envious of them and I wonder what it would have been like if I would have said, I'm only going to write my books and let them um let the chips fall where they may let, let the audience build what builds. And if it doesn't, it doesn't, I I wish I had that confidence sometimes.
0: Yeah. I think for, like I said uh, earlier, I think if you're using Twitter as an art project or social media as an art project, or maybe to just share things you, you truly are enthusiastic about like sharing, I don't know. I love this book or I love this movie. Like that kind of usage to me seems healthy I guess it's all how you relate to it. I had to stop just because I was too hooked and it was driving me crazy. I think a lot of it had to do with the past four years and just how toxic things got, but I think I'm better off without it. I was never particularly good at it. And I, I guess too, like how soul destroying it is has a lot to do with how you respond to audience response. <laughs> You know, like if a tweet is not getting enough likes or if people are don't get your joke or think that it's rude or, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that you can stumble online. Um, you know, do, do you have a, an easy ability to sort of just put something up and move on? Or if something fails, does it bother you for a day? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: it's a complicated. I have a complicated answer in the um, you know a bad joke that no one likes i don't really care. I just delete it and I forget it and I'm like yeah. that's the price of trying to be funny um the other thing, like people actually being mad at you or um or being upset about something you've written, I feel like I, f- I fear it a lot more than it has ever happened and um so i don't I don't really generally care about that. I think if 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 I felt like my jokes were, if I stumbled in one of the mi- millions of ways you can stumble, I think I would get over it pretty quickly. And so I think that's what allows me to keep going and constantly blasting out stupid shit. But um, but I I would certainly f- I certainly fear that. And so I think that's part of why I've revised so so heavily. It's like I'm like. Is, is there anything about this joke that isn't like, could it be better? Could it be even, I mean, this is, this seems really silly, but, um, you know, I'll take the dumbest joke in the world and say, is there a way to make this joke more, um, engaging to people, like, um, or, or less exclusive to people? So, um, All right. I don't I don't know how to explain that, but I like holding the worst, lowest form of humor, a a silly joke to like the highest possible standard Um, or masking my own insecurities with like layers and layers of stupidity so that no one could see it and actually take it seriously. Although I've had one viral tweet and it's very um, some people do take it seriously and it's very surprising. Um, What is it? It's like a, it was written during, I don't know, some Trump scandal about, I don't even remember, but it was, it wasn't even about that. It was like, I drink ravioli, <laughs> I drink, um, it's like, the tweet is, I every morning I fill up a um, a thermos full of tea, but instead of a tea bag, I put one ravioli in there. And so it's hot water and it cooks the ravioli all day. And so I like I drink this ravioli tea all day, and then in parentheses in the middle of the tweet it says I work at the White House. And then it goes on to say like at the end of the day I get home and I finish the tea and I like the ravi the wet ravioli slides into my mouth and I eat it. And <laughs> to me, <laughs> that joke is so dumb or um, it's. i like it for for what i write i mean it's an it's a classic example of my favorite kind of my own writing on twitter um with just like one tiny connection to the real world um that many people believe that it was real or like oh my god this guy works at the white house i mean you can't you, you wouldn't believe the number of people who have commented things like that so i don't like it i don't like viral i don't I I like tweeting dumb jokes, but I don't like, um, attention. So it's really, it's actually more painful to be retweeted a a thousand times than to never be retweeted. Really? Uh, Yeah, I think so. It's like too much
0: dopamine. You just like overdose and something bad happens.
1: It's this fear of exposure. I think it's the fear of being misunderstood. Um, and i don't know just being a paranoid anxious person and when and so if i'm not depressed i don't care i'm like whatever who cares stupid moving on but if i am depressed or anxious oh man it's such a it's such a reason to fear anything like somebody's gonna read this tweet and think that i actually work for trump or like oh my god they're gonna come at me and like they're going to knock on my door in the middle of the night. Like my mind will be, um, really hyperactive and make me wonder why I'm doing anything online. <laughs> we'll
0: see. But the, the, with the nature of your delivery here in this conversation, it's hard for me to imagine like the word hyperactive does not come to mind. You seem really mellow, maybe a little depressive. Is it uh,
1: like, is that something you, uh, struggle with? Uh, yeah, I think certainly to an, I guess there's no such thing as normal, but I perceive my own depression or anxiety as fairly middle of the road, but I don't really know. Um, But I I know that my moods go in waves, you know. Um, It's like good weather comes in, bad weather comes in, and then it's a cycle. And uh, when there's bad weather, I'm afraid of everything. And when there's good weather, I'm not really afraid of anything. So... I, I think, you know, last time we did an interview, I remember being kind of nervous. I've never, I'd never done an in-person podcast before. Your setup is very professional. And like, um, it was like, oh man, I'm kind of, I'm sweating right here. Even though this is the nicest guy in the world, I've just met him. He's like literally the nicest guy in the world. Um, and I thought, I thought during that interview I was a nervous wreck. And then I listened to it. I couldn't even listen to it for at least a month. I finally listened to it. And I was like, oh, man, you sound actually quite calm. You sound – I was very proud of how I sounded, mellow and in control. And um, so it's – to me, that's a great example of how you feel is not <laughs> how you come off. Um, and as we're speaking now, I, I feel calm in the way that I did after I'd listened to our interview before. So maybe I'm remembering that this is a good interview experience.
0: Well, I hope so. And I think, you know, a couple of things, like, first of all, I love how you describe your moods, like the weather. I, and, and also like this, this notion, which I think is a lot more common than people often talk about is th- this lack of having a, or this lack of um certainty about whether or not one's moods are normal. I <laughs> uh, I think about this all the time because I will wake up some days and I'll just it'll it like you know it'll just be on me, you know, worries, self-criticism, self-loathing, uh fear, about the future, worry for my family, whatever it is, you know, all the stuff that comes at a person in their brain when they're in one of these blue moods. Other days I'll wake up like feeling unencumbered. Uh, I'm never like, I can't get out of bed. I'm never that, that person, you know, that's always kind of the litmus for me. Like if I can get out of bed, I'm fine. Uh, I think when you're really immobilized, like that's when maybe things have taken a turn, but, um, I think by paying attention to it and kind of watching the weather come in and go out and you go through it enough times, you sort of learn to have a healthy mistrust um, or at least like a, a certainty that it's impermanent. You know what I'm saying? Like, okay, it's here. Here we go. You kind of watch it and hopefully get a little bit curious about it. And when you're in that mode, I think it starts to diminish. But I do sometimes wonder like, is everybody going through this? Or do I need to see someone (laughs) like like how like how frequent like are the intervals too close um, or is this just human? Is this just the human condition?
1: It's yeah, it's a it's a great question. It's I think every I think I'm not sure, but I, I believe like kind of loosely that everyone is going through it and it, and you should see someone <laughs> probably both right but, uh, <laughs> but i don't know i mean i'm a big fan of of seeing therapists if you can and um uh, yeah. even if you're totally fine and if you if you don't have that outlet of uh, of a connection to um someone who is both not your close personal friend and family member so there there's like a distance there and also um also is like has a kind of um pedagogical or spiritual or or you know non-you perspective that's kind of a not just their personal opinion but some kind of professional or bigger picture anyway i don't need to tell you that therapy is good but uh it's a good question and um a lot of people don't maybe, – maybe I would imagine a lot of people suffer unnecessarily because they think it's not as normal or they um, – certainly before I ever sought help, um, I suffered a lot and I didn't know that – or maybe I believed it was normal. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to ride this roller coaster because this is what you're supposed to do as a human being. You get sad, you get happy. And I think a lot of people can be fine without – you know, if you can accept it and say, this is, this is how it is, then, um, that actually helps a lot. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's a normal, but I do know this is that fear and anxiety, uh, is always going to be happening or it's always, it's always has the potential to roll in like, like a thunderstorm. And, um, But when the storm actually is there and you like getting struck by lightning, it's not as painful (laughs) as worrying about it. So bad things happen. And I think people are pretty resilient when bad things actually occur. they They quickly figure out how to adapt and protect themselves and protect other people. But it's the fearing of the pain that is the worst that's hard to avoid.
0: Yeah, what is the Mark Twain quote? It's like I've been through a lot of awful things in my life 98% of which never happened. You know what I'm saying? It's like that kind of thing. Like we're so much of the darkness is is, is imagined, you know. We we lose we burn up a lot of energy on that.
1: It's true. Um that's why, you know, exercise is good and joining clubs and communities is good because anything that takes you out of your head obviously is it's gonna i I think it physically reduces you know the amount of energy in your brain it's like saps it with physical activity or um social activity um but i don't know
0: it's funny to hear you say that because now i'm thinking about that poem uh i think it's called volunteering yeah that's what it's called yeah it's a really funny poem about the psychodynamics of being in a group and feeling social pressure to volunteer, <laughs> and I, I think especially in the context of being a parent, there are so many of these instances in school communities where it's like, okay, parents, we need a couple of volunteers, and everyone's sort of looking at each other, and, uh-huh. and then you go into that mode where it's like, should I do this? Is this? What, are people expecting me to do this? Am I a bad person for not wanting to do this? And you know, I'll let I'll let our listeners read the poem to to get the full experience, but it captured something that I hadn't seen captured quite so well before that i think is common to so many of us and i think there's an irony you talk about how joining things is good for you i'm often like i need to be more of a joiner i need to get more social i've lamented this on this show many times and yet you go into one of those situations and it's like all right we need some volunteers who wants to lead the discussion tonight or whatever it is you know and it's like oh god not me i just want to go home (laughs)
1: yeah it it's it's uncomfortable but it's like i'm i greatly prefer that social uh, i think i greatly prefer that social awkwardness to the kind of prison of your own head uh trapped in your room like bouncing off the walls that's that's my worst i hate that and i like so when it gets that bad it's um you do i i do find it very uh freeing to get outside and um Go to uh, like a, a, a concert. I don't even want to go to you know like a there's a there's some band playing at a farmer's market. I'm gonna go get some strawberries and beans, and I'm gonna literally sit there and listen to this band and hang out with someone I kind of like you know or kind of know. Um, it's like taking a walk. I never want to take a walk. I, I'm never like oh man, I gotta go take a walk right now, but so it's like pulling teeth to get me to take a walk but once i do i never regret it on the other end i never come home from the walk and i'm like oh i shouldn't have taken a walk i'm so happy that i did and social interaction is often the same for me it's i hate it when i'm doing it or i dislike it intensely and i can't all my little judgments come out and i like look at all these people and start judging everybody and i feel like a jerk even though i'm being nice to them and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Should I be a leader? Should I be a follower? Should I be a if I'm if I volunteer, am I going to be stepping on some other guy's toes who wants to be Mr. Big Shot? Like, that's also constant. And if I do volunteer, and I say, Yes, I'll do this, well, I'm going to want to do it my way. And people don't want to do it my way. And well, now, we've got a conflict that gives me more anxiety. So all that stuff i think though is prefer- preferable to um fearing phantoms in my own you know office or bedroom and like um worrying about asteroids and uh volcanoes and wars that i cannot control so
0: i think what you should do in these group settings is bust out your collection and just be like guys i'm a poet <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> got a couple of uh poems i'd like to share uh, you know in, in, a, in a strange way i think that might actually work well i guess it depends if on the audience
1: <laughs> i wish i was that unselfconscious i wish everyone was you know like who really are you what do you really love like let's share it let's but you know those people are annoying sometimes those people are annoying so you don't want to be annoying i it, it if 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 you if you ran that statistical um, regression a thousand times, only one time would the poet be good or interesting. Would be so many bad ones, and so. Yeah, I find
0: to... I find in like in my experience that being a literary person, the less you talk about it, <laughs> I guess, unless you're in like a context like this or. You're at a reading or some kind of like a explicitly literary event. I'm talking more in just like day to day social interaction. The less you talk about it, the better. Uh, it never te- never tends to go well. Like, I, and have you ever had the experience where people are like, "So, what are you up to?" And you're like, "Oh, I wrote a poet, You know, I write these poems, and I you know they kind of start on Twitter, and you're trying to kind of explain yourself, and then you see them tuning out. And it's like, why did you even ask me? Like, you know, like it's yeah. nobody actually wants to hear about. Your writing. They might want to read it on their own time, but I think like a little bit goes a long way in day to day. And it's always better, I think, to err on the side of brevity.
1: It's it's very true. I, I think early on, I made a lot of mistakes of that. Like I'd go to a reading and read for way too long or I'd, you know, some someone would ask me about writing and I'd talk forever and they weren't interested or they, they weren't interested in the nitty gritty. And my nitty gritty was very boring. It wasn't even an interesting perspective on writing it was just a sort of narcissism so those are those are all bad memories but they teach you good lessons i think about how to i think really it's like understand the person you're talking to what do they actually care about and what do you care about that is a overlap and like in this conversation we can talk about twitter we're blue in the face but if i meet like a friend of my wife's family and they're like oh you're a poet what do you write the answer is much different um but it's still an honest answer it's just a uh, it's i'm going to give you i'm trying to give you what you want and not what you absolutely don't want
0: which i but. think is a which i think is a kind of social grace and i think there's a it's a real uh skill to be cultivated which is to know your audience and to speak to that particular audience i think sometimes people miss that i think it's a like a good teacher for sure in any you know in any discipline is is always doing that you know you're not going to teach or you're not going to talk at a super high level to a bunch of neophyte like beginner students and vice versa you know and I think sometimes people can can kind of lose that you know they can kind of uh fall in love with the sound of their own voice or something and they can forget to tend to the needs of whoever they're talking with
1: I think the teacher is a it's a good example or it's a good analogy i wish everybody if i could i don't think i would do this but I, it might be a good idea if everyone had to teach because um i have been a teacher for a long time and it's i was a, a horrible teacher at first because i didn't really uh, cater to my audience and meet them where they were um and they didn't they didn't get into it and they didn't learn as much but once i kind of was like where are they where's their starting point and where what's what's the where can I take them what's the most amount of you know distance I can take them down this discipline um from where they are now and man it really helps you and you have so many awful students and so many brilliant students and so many different kinds of students that it forces you to like be audience focused um
0: well I mean I feel like it would make you a better writer because it, it helps you work that muscle. You know, I think being a, um, this is something that's been on my brain a lot lately too, is this notion that like really, really gifted writers, one of the main gifts they have is either an instinctive or intuitive or cultivated understanding of the reader experience you know, I guess maybe a more general reader experience. It's different, um, from person to person, obviously, but like a finely cultivated sense of how an audience is going to respond and what an audience wants, you know, from a story or from a poem. And I think when pe- when you talk about people who are gifted, I think part of like a big part of the gift is that it's like one thing to be able to string pretty language together, but it's another thing entirely to have it really connect and, uh, like, the really good ones
1: connect a lot. <laughs> I, I think that's generally true. I would also, though, allow for um, – I think it's a spectrum. You can be too focused on the audience and be pandering or, you know, you, you only give them what they want without any challenge or without introducing anything that they might not know that they want that's, that's new. So I think I'm very much an audience, you know, I think about the audience a lot, even unconsciously, and I want to please them, but I also want to challenge them because I think that's what I want from a reading experience. I want to read a novel or a book of poems that feels good, but also feels weird, or I d- it gives me a lot to think about or feel. Um, so... I certainly think you could take it too far. And I also think there are writers who don't care about the audience at all. To me, they're the one in a thousand, you know, who are also brilliant or genius that kind of they 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 gamble everything on their vision regardless of audience. And sometimes that gamble pays off, although I think it's very rare. like James, so, Like
0: James Joyce or something. I'm trying to think of who it would be, but – you know like U- I mean it, Ulysses or Finnegan's wake or something like that
1: exactly it you know the the canon of of like you know genius of geniuses of literature is full of those but it's also full of people who deeply understood their audience and tried to meet them where they were while adding new things that the audience might not have expected so both both writers can exist it's to me easier to figure out how to um, understand the audience than it is to Be a visionary And never consider or to try to minimize your consideration of audience and still Still gain an audience that to me is like It's like rolling the dice and if you get a 20 you win or is that like rolling the dice if you get a thousand <laughs> One at a thousand you can you can build an audience like that, but for most um poets who don't consider audience or writers who don't consider audience at all, it's going to be a giant struggle. And I've met writers, many writers who don't care about success or even having an audience. They just want to write their, um, difficult texts or challenging texts without regard to the audience. And as long as they're happy with those get with that gamble, I think they should be encouraged. And, um, I think, you know, I I will read an experimental novel and and really get a lot out of it um knowing that almost no one I know else will because I like the f- being forced to uh, to think about the form of the novel or the form of the poem and I really enjoy those things because I'm like a you know nitty I'm in the nitty gritty of craft and um and, and language and all that but I know that many people will have no patience for that So the most frustrating, though, is you meet a writer who is unwilling to compromise about um, meeting their audience where they are. And they also feel kind of wounded or or embittered by their lack of um, attention. And those are really tough because I don't know what to tell people, you know, that not that it's my job to help them. But it's I've had many friends who was like. I mean, I've had to grapple with this. Everyone, I think, does has to grapple with, like, how weird am I going to be? How me am I going to be? How idiosyncratically me am I going to be? And what amount of attention do I need to still feel validated? Um, We all make that choice somewhere along the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, it's like
0: it's calibrated, right? You know, and I think a lot of it's, you know, intuitive, like balancing the sense of wanting to challenge a reader, say, or be experimental or be idiosyncratically yourself against audience expectation, wanting to wanting to crowd please, you know, it seems like the good ones are especially the ones that resonate, but also, you know, make motions toward high art or whatever, tend to find a nice equilibrium there. Uh, and I think even the person who's sort of defiantly idiosyncratic and doesn't quote unquote care about the audience, that person, especially if they're successful in, in connecting, maybe not with like a giant audience, but if they write experimental work that has like a cult following or something, I would argue that they, even if they profess to not care about the audience or to not have that top of mind, that the kind of talent that I'm talking about, um, is tied to their ability to edit themselves you know what i'm saying like i think it comes down to that part of the process where you're editing yourself and yeah maybe you're just trying to please yourself but even there you're making determinations about how the work comes off and that's how the work comes off to a reader so maybe you can trick yourself into thinking you're the only reader that really counts but at the bottom of it i think if you're if you're successful in rendering a book that some people enjoy anyway that you do have at least a, a, a you know some sense of of their experience you know in your brain buried maybe but but still
1: there i i really agree with that i i used to have this thought it's not very original but it was that um i would tell myself i write to please myself but i take it as a as a given that myself is composed of all the people I've ever met, all the things I've ever read, all the other, all the other audiences. It's like the self is an imaginary audience composed of all the other voices you've ever been exposed to, or that really sunk deep into you. So, even when you're like only writing to please yourself, you're still pleasing. You're, it's as if you're pleasing a chorus of all your influences, and that really. I mean, I think. For me, that is a a mirror of what I think the world is, or at least what I think my particular audience is. A very kind of, um, it's like I, you know, the the multitude line of like I have multitudes inside me, or whatever that line is. Um, so I think that's true, and certainly poets who are, you know, um, extremely experimental and refuse to compromise. Um, their vision for audience are certain. Are, they are made up of an audience. You know, they they themselves are. I think their vision is pieced together by different perspectives. And there's probably people out there who enjoy that. You know, like different people. So, so
0: I want to ask you a bit more about your process, um, because these these the lines in your poems feel like the most brilliant tweets (laughs) you know it's like your best stuff they feel labored over and you talked a little bit earlier about volume and how you generate a lot of different fragments and then from those pick the best ones or piece you know together fragments that might at first blush seem disparate but that wind up having interesting connections like from a Nuts and bolts, like getting words on the page perspective. Like, what does that look like? Like, what does a writing session look like for you? Do you sit down and just like do like a fragment generation exercise? Um, Do you like have flashcards or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm trying to imagine like how you're making these associations or, um, you know, picking out what to write about, you know, like, where does it come from? Are you
1: online? You know
0: what I'm saying? Like, what does it actually look like?
1: Um, it's, it's interesting. The, it is, I feel like I'm always generating fragments regardless. And then Twitter is kind of one output. And then, um, if I think of a line or an image, I'll throw it in like a document or a, you know, write it down. And I'll, by this time in my life, I have, you know, an ocean of old poems, old fragments. I have like a, an infinite sea of a million lines so
0: is it, all, it, this... wait,
1: is it all in one document may I ask no it's in lots of different documents like um, there's like a uh, poetry folder so um, there's in the poetry folder there's uh, hundreds of old poems or bad poems or unfinished poems with titles and those poems may have you know 20 lines in them or they may be a monologue or they may have fragments or they, they have maybe multiple drafts in them. And then there's also a sort of fragment document where all the, I don't know what poem this goes into. It's just a fragment that I've just thought of independently. And that goes into another kind of like it's at, it's pinned at the top. So I've got all a bunch of ongoing fragment piles and then I've got old poems, but they can be mined for fragments to go in other poems or vice versa. And with specifically writing poetry, I write a lot of other things that take up much more time. But so when I write poetry, it's usually I'm taking a break from something I've been working on all morning, like more narrative, like a novel or a story or a screenplay or or my freelancing. And uh, so I'll take a break and I'll be like, oh, man, I really want to. Oh, somebody emailed me asking for a poem. Do I have any good poems? You know, someone, I think um, Joseph Grantham asked me for one about five years ago, and I'm, I'm still trying to find a poem that I think would go good on Nervous Breakdown. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's like there'll be some impetus that I'll say, hey, write a poem or finish one off. You've got a thousand old poems. Just pick one, dust it off. It'll be new to whoever reads it. And I'll spend 15 minutes trying to revise it, adding fragments, taking away fragments. It'll now become at the t- it'll be at the top of my poem pile. And if I don't if I don't feel like great about it, I just abandon it and say, "Okay, I'll, I'll do this tomorrow," when I take a break. So although they take many years to write, my poems are written in little bursts, maybe, you know, 5 minutes a day or 20 minutes a week, and I'm like I'm slowly trying to like piece together something that is interesting um and feels unique to me Um, i'm trying to think if there were other parts of your question well i think a related
0: question then would be when do you feel ready to submit you know if there's so much labor and and you know careful uh attention paid to each line and to you know to making sure that it's right before it goes out. I, I'm just wondering about that part of the process. Like, when do you finally go? Okay, this thing's
1: this thing's good. I'm going to submit it somewhere and see if anybody else likes it. <laughs> well, it, I'm really bad about submitting because I need the pressure of a deadline. Or like, if if someone says, you know, if if Poetry Magazine was like, hey, we we want to publish some poems of you, you got to have them in by August 30th. I would submit my best poems by August 30th but without that deadline they are in an endless state of revision and so they don't really finish until i look on my i wake up one morning and i'm like oh I'm, there's a deadline for a a poem submission thing today so i'm going to spend maybe i'll spend an hour that morning trying to put together the submission with all these poems that have been slowly coming together and if i feel good enough about them i'll hit send that day and if they like them then they're done You know, if they didn't like them, then they're still in progress. And I don't um, I think because of Twitter, uh, I know many uh, because of Twitter and because of like just my career or places I've lived and poets I've met. I know lots of indie press publishers and stuff like that. So periodically, some somehow randomly, I'll have someone who wants to publish a book of mine. And so that will be a big deadline that will force me to like, okay, what are the poems that are going in the book? Let's revise them. Now that we have a book coming or a potential book, let's let now move that above the novels and above the screenplay and like really button down. And let's make this long list poem work for real and not just kind of casually hope it works someday. Um so it's often the book or the the actual publisher of the website or something saying, "Hey, were you going to send me those? They're due today." That is the impetus to to finish revising them and to send them out. And it's kind of backwards that it's a backwards way that I think most poets for for a long time have been, you know, all the poets that I grew up studying, I imagine finished their work They say, okay, it's done, and then they blast it out to all the magazines that they want. Um, But I'm just not good at that. And, uh, yeah, I I hold on to it for a long time, change it endlessly. Um, But once there's a deadline, I let it go. And if they like it, then I I magically believe that it's right.
0: I'm kind of the same way.
1: Like... i I, like i said i trust
0: the wisdom of the crowd uh you know you don't want to be too self-critical to the degree where it becomes like toxic or stultifying or something but like i think if, if if you know you put stuff out there and people are responding positively especially multiple you know then it's i don't know there's some wisdom in that and i i guess too it's it's a question or at least for you it seems like you've had the ability to put poems out there, find a positive response and have enough of them out there that you have publishers approaching you wanting to put collections together. Like you haven't had to go knocking, like they've come to you.
1: Well, I've definitely knocked a long time, but no one ever answers when I, when I knock, uh, or, you know, but I've also had, and periodically someone will come to me and say, Hey, do you have a book? like, you know, we're, we're going to publish some books next year. If you have one, we'd love to publish yours because we loved your other book. So that's happened to me three times, maybe two poetry books. And you no, know, maybe all my books have come that way. But it doesn't mean that I didn't have an infinite or thousands of rejections. So like, you know, I, I tried every single contest for, you know, years and years because I wanted to try to publish a book and never even – very rarely would even, um, you know, be in the honorable mentions. And that makes sense because I don't, I didn't publish the conventional way. I'm not like putting my poems in like the whatever review, you know, regularly. And so, and I I think I don't write poems that go well even in, in, in a lot of magazines because they're too long. They're like, if you, when you read When you read my poems, or especially the longer ones, in a book, in a book that has been like pristinely designed to create a halo of meaning around these specific poems, then it's a whole different experience than like, oh, the same poem published on a website that you're going to have to scroll and look at a screen and you're distracted and you didn't buy the book. You just saw the link. It's like your whole mindset is different how you come into the poem so my poems don't really work that well, I think. My best poems, they're, they're just not, I don't know, they don't fit in with a lot of um, publication places. Even, even really interesting websites who publish interesting poetry, I don't even often like publishing my poems there because they're too long. It's like I don't want to read a long poem on the Internet because my eyes already hurt from all the other shit i'm reading and staring at i i like so it's weird i don't know if that's i don't know if it's true that my poems work well in books but not in other places but it's a theory that i have that um i don't yeah i sometimes think about i think about that all the time but I'm always trying to be like, write a short poem. You know, it's like, all right, Mark, today's the day you actually write a short poem that can go up on a website because your friend asked you for one. And I just never get there. I know it's like, I don't like I write a short poem and I'm like, "Uh, eh, it's okay, but I didn't I didn't really do anything. I don't I don't like it enough or something."
0: Well, it's funny. I've I've argued on this show um many times that poetry is better suited to the internet than other literary forms because of its brevity, like the contained nature of it. Like you can read a poem and enjoy a poem in a deep way on your phone or on your computer screen more easily than you can say like a 10,000 word essay or whatever, but a long poem, I think the longer the poem, the harder it gets. I think the point that you made earlier about how the poem that's when it's like taken out of a book out of that context and also detached from the other poems in the collection, totally changes the way that it's read. And that's something that I hadn't necessarily thought much about is the way a poem in isolation reads as compared to the way it reads when it's, you know, embedded into a hundred page book or whatever it is. You know, I think that there's a lot to that, you know, and it certainly (laughs) feels that way with, with your work and in this collection, like each poem definitely feels like it's of a piece with the others. There feels like there's a build. It's a little bit ineffable, but it's there for me. Uh, I'm sure that was part of the intention.
1: Well, I hope I'm glad to hear that. It is. It's definitely part of it. I I like the book as a form, and uh, it's. I, I I get excited when I think here's a poem that would never be able to exist on its own. It's not good enough. It's not interesting enough. But is there a place it could go in a sequence in a book, where what you just felt from the previous poem is now like flooding into the beginning of this poem, and it's going to change how you see this first word, this title, this first line, and that is really interesting to me. That's like you're, it's like you're, you're playing with the forces of context as they flow through a text, and changing how the text feels that's sort of a kind of transformative magic to me that I think is usually only possible in a book. Although, you know, cool stuff you've read online probably does the same, same thing. And there's this, you know, the random context or the self, um, self cultivated context of a Twitter feed is also, has a similar effect. It changes the, the flow of emotion through the texts that you read next to one another. But in a book you can really, um, Get that working um, and push it so that i think that there's some surprise the reader feels when they read a poem and they're like i didn't i don't know why this is feels good i don't know why this is interesting because it lo- doesn't look interesting but i feel something interesting to me that's that's the goal of of, of the book reading experience and it's the it's the same experience of that i read in other poets you know when you read a a book of poetry by someone who's a great poet i don't know about you but like i'm i'm not like oh man i can't wait to read another ashbury poem in this ashbury book i can't wait to read another you know, i've never <laughs> i've not read all his books but whenever i do the feeling is very i feel like i'm changing i feel like i'm i'm experiencing some kind of magical transformation um because it's in a book because these words their meaning grows and changes and and, in biggins based on the context around them
0: i think that i mean you talk about ashbury i think there's some i feel like your work is an accessibility to it um it doesn't have it's not that it isn't challenging But I guess where I get most frustrated is with maybe the more like really explicitly experimental work or work that's really high minded. And you have to have a very sophisticated understanding of poetry and language to even be able to get anything from it uh, tangible. I love work. And this is where I, I think I respond so well to yours that kind of works on multiple levels. And I think crucially too has humor in it. I love that you're telling jokes. Um, (laughs) so often, you know, literature can be too humorless, you know, and, and certainly this world kind of feels starving for, uh, for a laugh. So I don't know. I, I appreciate the fact that you're, you're doing all these different things, but it certainly never feels cheap. You know, you're not going for the cheap laugh. Like it's a, it's a deep laugh and you know earlier we were talking about joke writing which i like too like that's such a thrill to put down some words on a page that make you laugh you know it's like oh that's great what a <laughs> what a nice use of language right and i think like my experience has just been that when they cut ca- like a joke that flowers quickly in my mind it tends to find a better response from an audience and i think there's truth to it but I think there are also comedians or humor writers or poets or whatever you want to call it who are working in maybe what I guess you could characterize as a slower mode. And I think, for example, of like Jack Handy, um, you know, they're Certainly. like, he's writing jokes, like capital R, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, but those are written jokes. They're little like contained paragraphs. Uh, Anthony Jezelbeck, I don't know if you've ever seen his act, but he's, he does the same he's writing like they're little block paragraphs really you know like that's the way that they probably look on the page george carlin was a very heavily written comic um it came off like a rambling screed but he was a guy who clearly loved language and would sit down and i I have to believe he'd write painstakingly like every word of the thing and then memorize it and maybe with some little deviation on stage perform it uh and then there are I think different comics are funny people who they're riffing, you know, and, uh, they have kind of a, a loose fr- they have like a framework for the joke and they know how to like fill it in. You know what I'm saying? They might come up with certain tropes, but you're,
1: you're more of like a Jack Handy or a, a Nick Well, that's very complimentary. I love, I remember Jack Candy's is probably my first favorite writer I ever had. I remember as a little boy, my dad would, he bought those books. He'd wait, Like if I would get to stay up late and watch Saturday Night Live and those are really the only parts of Saturday Night Live I got. I thought they were I thought the deep thoughts were hilarious. And so I had those books and I'd read them over and over and over on long car rides. And I um, I only recently realized that literally that the voice of that, the like trying to push the stupidity of a narrative so far that it it feels inexplicable is really my favorite you know way to write jokes and maybe the only way I actually write anything funny but um so yeah I'm, I'm definitely not an improvisational um, funny person although in real life I think I'm much funnier you know improvisationally but really only around people I really know I'm not like I'm not that funny to, you know sometimes like i have a friend named mike who was really good at improv and uh he would do you know comedy and in shows and he had this troupe and all that and he could be so funny just just meeting total strangers instantly hilarious and i'm always just standing there like uh i got to think for a long time to be funny like i don't know what's funny to these people i don't know what's funny i don't know what to say to them i don't know them so you know, but around my family, I'm very funny, like every, everybody's funny around their family, probably. So it, it makes sense to me that these jokes feel <laughs> like wrought um, and not not like I don't not just like tossed out in a blaze of a manic creativity, but um, like architected or constructed or something well
0: but also like beaten to death
1: you know that's kind of the point <laughs> yeah yeah.
0: you know what i'm saying like that's that like that is illuminating to me because i miss that sometimes it's like oh yeah you know like uh, what would happen to me i think is that i would be working on a joke and it would be frustrating me you know I'd be like oh, i just can't get the the twist you know i can't get the laugh <laughs> yeah. and then i would abandon it and i think what you're doing is like you're continuing to just hammer the thing and push it oh yeah like push yeah, it, I'll, and that's. I'll the... keep
1: it in the draft folder for, in the Twitter draft folder, you know, a long, a long joke like seventy-five characters over the limit, and I'm like, one day, like five years from now, I'm gonna look at this and I'm gonna instantly know, the right way to tell that joke, but, not today.
0: Well, I'm feeling very proud of myself for the Jack Handy uh, reference, and I had no idea that that was a that he was a central figure in your creative youth or whatever, you know, but I, I can definitely see the similarities and I share with you admiration for him. Like I love, I, I, like, I don't think there's enough of it almost. There's not that many comics working that way, but they're like, they're literary comics. They really are, you know, like they, it's like a short form monologue poem almost, you know, that has a zinger at the end. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I don't know what it would be like if someone was doing Jack Candy style comedy like on stage or uh I sh- I know I know there's there's comics who do that sort of thing. Um but
0: who's well, the best? Yeah, no, I was like I, like the reason I bring up Jeselnik is just cuz it was like a pandemic watch that really made me laugh. I ate a gummy, you know, I got to give you full context. So if I'm overselling <laughs> it, it was just like, it was, I was in the mood for it. It was like super dark, but I found myself thinking a lot about why it worked, you know, cause after you get a good laugh, you're like, wow, why did, why did that work on me so well? And, uh, you know, the, the only thing I could, I could say is that a, you've got to be practiced at your delivery. But the second thing is that Jeselnik is like a good looking guy and like a crucial, uh, Part of his act is that he embodies on stage like his on-stage persona is that of the like supremely self-confident prick mm-hmm. like you know it's like that's part of the joke is that he embodies that all the time on this on the stage as he delivers his his lines and I'm wondering if maybe like taking on a persona, not necessarily that persona, but having like a performative element like that coupled with the good writing. Is what you need to make it effective on stage. Do you see what I'm saying? Like,
1: yes, I think it's. I think it's very true. It's like it's the context. It's the in, it's the invisible context. I mean, he's he his what he looks like is not invisible. But it's if you just were to look at his jokes, his context as the delivery, what he looks like, how he delivers, what he's wearing, where he's standing, that is all invisible if you just saw the text. And it's that. It's that flow of context through the text that creates that tension that makes people laugh. And Jack Candy the same thing is that his his words were presented on uh, on TV screens with an with like nature, like a babbling brook in the background and a big cursive deep thoughts typeface. And um, it's that context of seriousness or like of harmony or of like new agey kind of psychobabble that makes his absurd stories inflected with tension. Um, And I think it's no different in my book or in anything that's, um, or I think it's similar in my book in that the book is really nicely designed and quiet and calm and has this kind of um, halo of meaning, of importance, of poetry around it. And if it weren't for that, I think a lot of the jokes might come off as it would just be different and the tension between something very stupid like a velociraptor chasing you through the jungle and the yin yang necklace around the velociraptor is bouncing off his turtleneck <laughs> This like the stupidity of that in the context of the kind of mannered seriousness of poetry is why i think it's interesting um and that's so, that's why it's so much easier to be funny at a poetry reading than to be funny as a comedian. Cause comedians are expected to be funny. So how do you, where's the tension? You know, you have to be really, really funny and unexpectedly funny in, in order to create tension between your comedic context. And a poet has a much easier job of just be really stupid and the halo of importance around you. Will often create enough tension for people to laugh
0: that's true huh and i think too like like something of an inverse to that is the fact that you know well no i guess it's not really it's not that related but i'm I'm thinking about the the way in which like a really gifted comedy writer like jack handy you know he's presented in that televisual context where he's reading his stuff and there's the babbling brook and it's I kind of love that old aesthetic of the deep thoughts on Saturday Night Live. You know, it was kind of, it was kind of antiquated. Yeah. I think it was kind of antiquated even in its, in its day. It felt like a throwback even in its day, but um, you have that context, you know, that I think makes it funnier, but it still is funny when you read it, which I think is important. That's the key. Cause like you read these jokes just on a blank white piece of paper, you would know that it was funny. And then you, add, you add these other elements and I think it heightens the effect and I was thinking, too, you know, these uh, we were talking about these kind of like monolog like paragraph joke writers. Um, then I think there are, are like the longer monologue joke writers like Carlin, who just, it feels like this winding thing, you know, that he takes you on. But then there's like a comedian like Stephen Wright or Mitch Hedberg, which are even shorter than the, the paragraph. They're like the one-liners. But Stephen Wright is another guy who, you know, the whole thing. That, uh, the 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 voice, the appearance, <laughs> like it, the whole package. You know, it's all it, it's all part of it. And you, you know, he'd be funny on the page, but it's it's obviously best to experience it. You know, in its uh, in its all of its like all of its effects.
1: It's true. It's it's that you know, all of these comedians are great comic writers, but it's how you how you put steroids on that in, in the contextual ways, like a Steven Wright delivery is like, it's, it's a, there's an, a, there's a shitload of tension in what he presents as and what he's saying. And you just can't reconcile it because his thousand yard stare is just so intense and his, I don't know. So I think that maybe you could say that like a lot of comedians are actually great great writers but they it's what's hard is to put that put the right steroids or gasoline or context around it to really make it be like un, like you can't look away or you you feel the shock of the new just by watching them um and i feel like if you go to um you know amateur comedy nights obviously there's lots of bad jokes there but there's lots of good jokes too but just but not the extra thing of of how to manipulate context so that the joke really kicks you um or the presentation really hits you
0: it's funny you know it's funny because you know you watch like a documentary on comedians or you you know you read enough about comedy you know that that's how they like they're rough drafts basically happen on stage like chris rock will go work comedy clubs when he's trying to put an hour together or jerry seinfeld these guys who are considered great and they will just bomb they will bomb you know time after time (laughs) they'll get up in front of a crowd and like nobody you know after the like you know the courtesy laughs at the beginning like if the jokes don't work the jokes don't work and it makes me think about like that part of it exactly like trying to like, you might have the joke on paper pretty right, but then you've right. also got to figure out, like, well, oh, I need to pause here. I wasn't pausing long enough. You've got to give the audience enough time to catch up. Like, you get you get sort of uh, calibrated in all those little tiny ways that nobody can see. And then, you know, once you've got all that mastered, then you can go out on 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 tour and kill most nights you know like so when you see the like the one hour special on hbo it's like at the end of that long process and it looks sort of effortless but there's probably so much going on you know uh, internally and in the room itself and all of it you know
1: yeah it's um it's it's really fun to watch you know i feel like when you watch a great comedian often you'll be laughing but the the thing is if you were to if uh, if you were to take that joke that you laugh so hard at and look at it alone again, it would not be that funny or like I don't know a lot of people they hate on Seinfeld, but I mean when I was a kid and we were watching Seinfeld and his little stand up routines in the during the show, I often thought they were so funny, but I didn't understand why I'm like it's not actually interesting or funny what he's saying there's no I don't recognize the joke but it's the flow, it's the delivery, it's the context, it's the, the perfect pauses or whatever. It's like he, he squeezes blood out of, out of a lemon, you know, or a turnip, sorry. Uh, and I think that becomes, um, watching someone be funnier than they should be is actually more funny than someone who's like playing with dynamite and has like the most hilarious content And it's like already, it's already too funny, or it's obviously funny. So I like, I sometimes think that in poetry, it's similar, like if you can write a poem that should not be interesting, but it actually is, um, that to me becomes more interesting than someone who's like juggling 5,000 awesome sounding words, and it's like full of jingles and jangles and crazy interestingness. Um, It's almost hard to appreciate, so... Uh, even though it, it should objectively be much more interesting.
0: It's making me think of voice. And it's making me think of like identity and and like the the personalization of it. Like think about just to use Seinfeld since you brought him up, like his voice is so distinct and it's impossible to think of him as a comedic figure without hearing the sound of him. You know, and same with Chris Rock. Like that voice and that Stephen Wright it's making me think of like the voice as an instrument and it's making me think of maybe finding a way to tell the joke. That's so personal and so, so embedded into who you are, who he is or who she is like as a person, temperamentally, emotionally, psycho spiritually, but also in terms of like how they sound, you know, like the phrasing in his particular voice with his particular timber and accent and all the rest, like, maybe when you're listening to a joke that's being that's funnier than it should be it's due to something like that you know some it's like that weird
1: mixture that's uh that's working yeah i i think that 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 has to be i mean i think that's true it also has to be true uh i mean what what else would you learn about by going out and bombing night after night after night after night if not the timbre of your voice, your, where your eyes go, like, you know, your body is constantly receiving that information of failure or success. And so um, I, I do think that's true. I, it would be funny to see like a, um, an, an app where you could make, you could take like a one comedian's routine and make another comedian's delivery uh, say it. So you're like watching Chris Rock do George Carlin and like, it, would it be funny? Maybe, but I'm. Mean, it might be funny for all kinds of different reasons. But once the novelty wore off, would and you showed it to a stranger who didn't know who either of these comedians were, would they think it was funny? I don't know.
0: Makes me also think about the importance of like having a good voice, like kind of like you would you would, uh, use it in a musical context. It feels like a lot of these comedians have really good voices. Like Dave Chappelle that dude's got such a great voice. Like, it, like that's part of it. It's part of the reason he's so effective up there is that, like, he's just got that awesome voice. And I wonder if he, he, he would not be... I have to believe he would not be nearly as funny without it. <laughs> and it makes me wonder if there are people who are actually talented joke writers but who lack, whatever, you know, whatever voice you might need. You know, they just don't have the great performative voice. And so they can't get up there and, and do it, you know? like
1: It could be that, you know but but i th- i think it's something that they would learn i think if you if you decide i'm going to be a comedian i'm going to write my ass off i'm going to perform i'm going to learn i'm going to get better your voice would probably you know i i you probably do you know any actors i've known a couple actors who like do this voice based like their their actor training their school of how they think of it is vocal it's like it all starts in the voice and it's they they find the voice, they they find their voice through the character or whatever. But it's like they they get the voice right and their body, you know, their mannerisms, their actual the rest of their acting kind of takes care of it. And I think performing night after night, just show business, it's like in any context is going to build your if you're going to keep doing it over and over, your voice will probably develop. I mean, I feel like my voice gets better when I'm teaching a lot. You know, if I'm teaching semester after semester and I'm talking constantly, how I talk becomes better. And now with the pandemic, I haven't really been teaching in classes for a long time. So, man, when I start talking to random, just random people in life, my voice doesn't even feel, I feel like, oh my God, what do I sound like? I sound like an idiot. So it's, I think you have a great voice because I would say, arguably, maybe you were born with it, but um, it's probably because you practice or you just you know this is what you do and like it's very it feels authentic feels rich you know so it's a, i would say i think like has it always been exactly this no or have you has your voice gotten better
0: well i think if i i mean i don't listen to a lot of my old episodes but i know i can like every once in a while i'll push play on one from like seven years ago and cringe <laughs> are you like yeah. i think like lower and softer I think is where I'm at. Like, I think if, if I'm keyed up, I'm talking like louder and high, you know, like, and if you're, (laughs) I think like this is more how I actually talk, I don't know. But then even that can become affected if you're thinking about it. You just basically don't want to be self-conscious at all. But I used to shout too much. Like you do learn how to relate to a microphone better the more you do it. And I sometimes I'm like, why am I yelling? Like, (laughs) I'm just like, just shouting into a, a microphone for some reason, but you know. You live and learn, and uh, I, I guess like a related question for somebody who's as funny as you are is whether or not you've ever performed. Uh, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier that you you don't love—I don't think you love
1: performance—but have you ever thought about being a stand-up comedian? I have done it a little bit a long time ago. I would go to an open mic and try it out, and I bombed most of the time. But I was, um, I don't know why I was doing it. I think I was bored and, um, I wanted to try it. And I, I, it's like one time I did, I did good and people were really laughing and I didn't completely forget my whole set and it worked and it felt so good. I felt, I just felt like I was flying, um, And then I realized that if I wanted to keep doing it and do that feeling, it was going to be so hard and it was going to take so long. And I, I looked around at the other open mic people full of, you know, other people who were doing it for much longer and had real ambitions to, you know, become standups or do comedy, um, semi-professionally or whatever. And It just, it looked so sad and everything I knew about the life of a comic was so hard and sad and full of like cigarettes and booze. And like, I don't know if you could constantly be under that spotlight and do go up there and feel the pain of failure. And then I don't know how I would regulate my emotions and still be a calm or whatever, happy person. And also I'd, by that point i'd spent so much time trying to be a writer of poetry and fiction and all these other things i was like we're not starting it was like it felt good one time and we're not we're not starting we're not gonna just change gears based on that so i like i don't know i had this epiphany that it would be too hard to be successful and probably wouldn't be successful anyway so but I'm so glad I did. Oh, I, I met a. as like I had a friend who I saw one time and she had mentioned wanting to do stand up at this open mic. And I randomly ran into her one day and I was like, let's do it together. We had a pact like we'll both do it. We'll workshop our jokes. We'll get up there and we won't we'll be afraid, but we won't back down. And we did it. And it felt great to kind of conquer that fear. And I think everybody should try it at least once if they can just to. Just to try it and know that like the, the hardest part is walking onto the stage. I've never felt more nervous than right before I went up, and it was like five people in this stupid bar. There's no there's no stakes for failing, but it just felt like your heart is just pounding out of your chest, and you're just full, flooded with all kinds of hormones and I don't know adrenaline. And to get up there and the light comes on or it's on you and you can't see the crowd and you just start talking and it's an out of body experience and you sit down and you just feel like you're floating. So it's such a weird experience that I highly recommend it to any writer. Um, And I think it's a metaphor for a lot of life and a lot of writing. Anyway, I could talk forever about that. Yeah, no, (laughs) period. uh, making me think of a
0: couple. (laughs) I had like Sam Tallon on the program not too long ago. He's a comedian and he wrote a great novel about a comedian um, called Running the Light, which I recommend. If you haven't read it, you'd probably dig it. But I'm also thinking too of Leland Chuck who was on the show and I think as part of like experiential research. My memory is spotty, but I want to say he went out and it's like doing experiential research for a book. He was like basically a working comedian in New York City for a couple of years. Like he would go out to open mics and he'd do the clubs. You know, he was he was really on that circuit. But the the ulterior motive was to to write about it. You know, not necessarily mm-hmm. to. I think if like great success had come, you know, like uh, you know, it would have been a bit of a surprise. And I think he would have rode the wave, but. It was mostly just to get to know that life. And I, I, I agree with you. I think, I mean, God, for anybody to go through that would be a useful exercise. At the very least, it would
1: help you with your fear of public speaking, right? I mean, it's funny that because a few years after I did that, I someone, there was a public speaking class up, you know, they were they needed a teacher for it at a college. And I applied for it. And I was like, I don't know anything about public speaking, but I did a, my pitch was I did stand up for a couple weeks one summer, and I feel like I learned a lot. And that's what I would teach just like stand up, get up there, and face the spotlight and say something you care about, or you know, say something that you think is interesting, and then sit down. And it was really all I ever taught. Um, Wait, did you get the job? Yeah.
0: That's quite a pitch, I did stand up
1: for two weeks one summer. they're like you're hired <laughs> well you know their bar's pretty low but, uh, I was say. they Or they really it was a very weird class. it was like on a it was like on an air force base, and it was like you had to go in it was an elaborate, complicated schedule and uh I was probably the only guy willing to do it, but I did think that. I could teach the class because I had learned so much from that experience. And I didn't really have any other formal understanding of public speaking. Um, It was just like the power of overcoming your fear by forcing yourself to get up in front of people and then literally be yourself if you can. Try to be yourself if you can. And, um, you know, some students liked it, some didn't, but it was like it was not how other people were expect and not how they were expecting to be taught public speaking. But
0: I think that, I think that, uh, you know, not everybody can be funny, but if you're going to be, if you're going to be giving a speech, you can work in a simple joke. That's about it. I feel like that's great advice. You know, if you're going to make people suffer through a speech of yours, you can at least throw in a joke or two. And it's a good way to just, Soften them up, get yourself comfortable, like nothing makes you more comfortable up in front of people if, than if they they laugh at one of your dumb jokes. <laughs> you know like it's a good way to find your footing, so I think there's a lot to learn from uh you know from the stand up experience that would be applicable and you know, I think too being a writer and somebody who deals in narrative storytelling uh you know, if you if you know how to tell a reasonably good story, that's another way to get in with people, you know, is to stand up and, I don't know, like relate something or tell a funny anecdote
1: and bring people in. For sure. I mean, that was really the, the, the first two speeches that we taught was tell a story about something that happened, like something you did as a kid that taught you something. And I was like, I don't care about introductions, conclusions, like just stand up tell a story a story you've told before but now you're doing it in front of strangers and um, I feel like if you just do that you learn a lot you learn I don't know all the things you learn when you perform are are essentially intuitive they're very hard to like they're particular to you they're particular to your content and it's very hard to say here are the five things we must all learn as public speakers but if you can learn the one thing of don't be afraid to be yourself in front of strangers, risk, risk the rejection and the fear of rejection, then the payoff you often get is um a sense of belonging or a sense of me- you've made meaning or whatever. And that's worth it. And how it how it translates from fear of failure to sense of meaning that you've made or sense of belonging is going to be different for everybody, Um, you know my aunt tells a story differently than my brother and they're very different, but they're both authentic to them. And that's all you got to learn to me as a public speaker. Um, all the bad public speaking, the worst, the worst public speaking doesn't come from <laughs> here. I am talking about <laughs> this thing. I haven't cared about in a long time, but <laughs> I once cared about it because I used to rant <laughs> to my students, but the, uh, the worst, public speeches occur when we try to fill out these like pre-imagined forms of what a good speech should be and all the most of the anxiety comes from feeling like we'll never measure up to that pre like preset mold of what a good speech is and if you can just break the mold in your head forget all the speeches you've ever seen on TV or in movies or a great coach has given you or whatever. And Just shatter that the only thing you got to do is be real with people and to face the fear of being rejected by them And if you do people will literally laugh at anything you say it doesn't have to be funny if they sense that you're just being yourself and you're comfortable or you're Acknowledging that you're uncomfortable. It's like if you make a mistake say, oh my god, I'm such a bad public speaker Just say that that's fine. Just reacting in the moment on all that stuff like the, all that improv type stuff is is also useful but something to consider
0: for your next book tour when you're on you know you're out on the road and at a, yes, at like, a bookstore
1: <laughs> i could trip. never do it myself my my students would be like what about you should give a speech and i'm like no i <laughs> don't just, have to i'm, a I'm just the teacher yeah i'm just the teacher i know how to do
0: it i can't do it myself but i know how to tell you how to do it exactly So uh, you are now in California. I'm trying to rack my brain and remember if you were here the last time you were here. Why do I feel like you moved since the last time we spoke? Am I wrong?
1: Yeah, we moved many times probably. I think um, we used to live in Portland, Oregon. Then we moved to Georgia where I'm from. That's where I think you were. On that move is when we met.
0: Okay, so wait. You were moving from where to where when we met? from Oregon to
1: Georgia. Right. But my wife's family is in California, so we would like come down from Oregon, stay in California, then on our move out, I think, or maybe it was we we swung through, you know, southern California, and I think that's when we did our interview. Right. But then we moved to Atlanta. 2 years later we moved back to California. Um and how do you like it? it's great i only the only thing i don't like is like i wish i was closer to my family but if we were in georgia we'd i'd wish i was closer and my wife would wish she was closer to her family so i'm pretty comfortable everywhere uh, i've ever lived and um growing up in georgia one thing is that it's every it's all closed in you know there's not really horizon because there's trees everywhere so you look out in your yard or even driving down the highway you're, you're hemmed in by trees and um here i still just can't get over the landscape the mountains in the distance and i don't know it just feels um it feels like a fantasy landscape to me even though i've lived here and been here a million times and so i think that naturally just makes me happy here um even when it's burning and whatever <laughs> yeah
0: right i mean it's like you take the good with the bad it's a spectacular place to be like from a like the physical landscape standpoint, but there's a lot that, you know, there's a lot that comes with it too. And, uh, I don't know, I haven't yet found the motivation to leave. So I guess that says that I, you know, I like it well enough to stay, but, um, I think feel like things have gotten increasingly crazy in the time that I've been here. It (laughs) certainly feels like we're on that scale, like both from like a wildfires, socioeconomics, you know human suffering political craziness like everything does feel like it's kind of ratcheting up i think a lot of us are absorbing that
1: Uh, yeah you never can tell i i I certainly think it it, it's everything feels like it's about to change for the worse in a hundred million ways um and it's already not good or awful and it does it's like we don't even have to name what we're talking about it could be anything but California feels the most complicated. Of all the places I've lived, I think it's one of the most complicated because of its massive size and massive different cultures and, and like, just the water rights. Like, I have, like, some family friends who, are like, you know, they they work in ag or water-related businesses, and it's like, I can't even every time I ask them what's going on, what are you working on? It's like, there's another Byzantine layer of complexity. I just don't understand. And I feel like California is it's like that with everything. Um, yeah. You
0: know, but, you're you right though. Cause it's easy to characterize it based on like it's coastal capitals, but it's a big place. There's all sorts of different, you know, all sorts of different uh, cultures and communities and places. Po- politics. Um, I mean, it's, it's gigantic. And then yeah, water rights, that's not going to get simplified anytime soon. Not, not just in California, but the whole American West. I mean, this past, you know, this past heat wave in June, there were a, a bunch of articles about that very thing because everything's drying out. So, you know, I don't know, like, are they just going to have to be, I think there's going to ultimately have to be like just gigantic desalination plants. That, that's the only option, right? You have to suck it right out of the ocean. And and uh, take the salt out of it in order to water
1: everything. I guess I hope someone is thinking about that. I mean, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> it's just like I don't know what the solution is going to be, but I do hold out some hope that it will be. Un- it's possible that there's unexpected solutions. That's what I like hold on to with hope is that there's. It's, it's very easy to imagine calamities. I, I imagine catastrophes and apocalypses constantly. But was always surprising is that either sometimes they don't happen, that's really nice. Um, but sometimes solutions occur that are completely unexpected. So if it's desal, I hope that I hope that doesn't fuck anything up even worse. But um, yeah, water would be nice. This valley where I live, you know, it would be it would be very helpful for a lot of people to have more water. But I don't know it's i was going to say one thing recently reminded me of how big california is is that um with the pandemic sort of hopefully ending i was trying to look up some like my wife and i we really like to go to music but go see live music but not not big concerts just like random bar random band like bluegrass or just some some kind of like weird little amateur ensemble of any variety so i'm like looking up music groups on facebook it's like northern california bluegrass festival circuit and they're like posting oh here we're gonna play here there's another band playing here there's another playing here and like look i was like cool this is it we're gonna be going to concerts this summer little simple stuff and it's like it's all like 300 it's called northern california bluegrass festival It's like everything is like at least 200 miles south of where we live. There's no – it's like I'm not even – like Northern California is like the top three-fourths of California. I thought I was like – I don't know. I feel like there's 500 miles further north, but Southerners – what I would consider a Southerner is saying that that's Northern California. So
0: yeah i haven't i'm really
1: i'm really new to this place I me
0: don't know. too i've I've been here for twenty years and i'm like i mean I haven't even scratched the surface i haven't been I haven't been to Lake tahoe i've never been to Yosemite like there's embarrassing gaps in my <laughs> California knowledge but it's just i don't know I haven't gotten around to it yet I'll get there hopefully sooner than later, but it's uh you could spend your entire life here and never see it all you know you can keep keep uh taking road trips i guess but I'm glad you're here, you know. It's nice to have another poet in state. <laughs> and uh I really enjoyed this collection and always enjoy your work, you know, and these conversations that we've been having um about it because it fuses a lot of things that I'm interested in, like the the fusion of being funny with being serious and thinking deeply about difficult things. That's my sweet spot. So I appreciate the hard work over all these years um you know in your writing hovel on twitter wherever it happens i'm just glad that they uh these efforts are bearing fruit and that you're putting them out there into the world
1: thank you very much brad you're very gracious and uh i i really enjoyed this conversation and our last one and uh thanks for all you do for you know giving given writers an opportunity to talk about their work
0: right there you go guys that's mark leidner his new poetry collection is called returning the sword to the stone available now from phonograph editions you can follow mark leidner on twitter which i recommend if you're a twitter person he's a good follow his handle is at mark leidner l-e-i-d-n-e-r mark leidner On Twitter. Once again, the poetry collection is called Returning the Sword to the Stone. Available now from Phonograph. Go get your copy. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 700 episodes and counting, are all made available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener supported program. If you like this show, if you listen regularly, you get something from it, and you have the means support the show tip your server you can do that for as little as one dollar per month over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod patreon.com slash other ppl pod drop a dollar in the hat drop two drop five there are different levels different tiers and as you go up the uh, go up the scale you get stuff you can get a tote bag a t-shirt a coffee mug I'll write you a postcard. I'll wish you a happy birthday. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Support the show. You can also support this program by rating it and reviewing it over at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. It helps other listeners find the show when you rate and review the other people podcast. So do that. If you have a couple of minutes, I would appreciate it. the other people podcast has its own app that too is free go get the other people with brad listy app wherever you uh, find apps if you would like to write to me the address is letters at otherppl.com letters at otherppl.com let me know what you think tell me a story the other people podcast is now available on youtube it has a youtube channel that's a relatively recent development check it out smash the subscribe button over at YouTube search for the show by name other PPL all right